0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only Master Cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
2: This week, it's the season finale of Meat and 3. We're following up our episode about youth with a look at age and how aging affects life on farms and in kitchens. At the, the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population.
1: The question of planning for retirement or old age as a cook it's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late.
2: We also have a story about a food that might be older than you think. A recent archaeological finding might have crossfitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Plus a story about one of Atlanta's most historic and risqué landmarks.
3: There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years.
2: Don't miss our season finale of Meat and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. And I'm your host Kathy Irway. Um, so it's a beautiful Sunday here in summer in uh, Brooklyn, but unfortunately summer is sort of on the wa- on the wane. And um, we are. I hope everyone is enjoying a lot of time outside during your travels or just walks throughout the park. And if you're anything like me, you might be wondering, you know, what is that berry or what is that fragrant smelling herb that? Um, is just hanging out here, and while you're frolicking outside, um, I have an expert who can tell you all about those kinds of things, and I'm really excited to talk with her. She is a foraging maven, and she's the author of the blog 66 Square Feet, but also and also a book by that name. And her new book is called Forage Harvest Feast: A Wild Inspired Cuisine, and uh, she takes us through all like almost 500 or so culinary edible herbs that you can find in the wild. So I'm really pleased to have Marie Filquan on the (laughs) show. And I'm still getting to know her last name. I
3: like this version.
2: Okay. (laughs) Um, So practice. Help me practice that.
3: It's pronounced Filyun. Filyun. Afrikaans, straight from South Africa. Okay, but originally French? Originally French, yeah. Villon. So I have a poet's blood in my veins, apparently, long ago. François Villon. So, of course, I write about recipes and foraging, not poetry. <laughs> no,
2: I think there's something so poetic about um, the way you write about these plants um, and sort of capture the magic of, of foraging as
3: uh, as almost spiritual endeavor. Do you see it as spiritual? I see it mostly as um, something to feed a really hungry person, if that's spiritual, <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
2: Well, just to be sure, you write about, you know, foraging for pleasure, not for sustenance, right? Not, like, for survival skills.
3: Exactly. Um, I mean, there are so many different foragers out there, and as foraging becomes increasingly trendy, I think they break off into little splinter groups of foraging. So Mm. I'm not one of the survivalists. Got it. Although you'd probably, you know, be well off with me and your group should the apocalypse happen, (laughs) and somehow, magically, there are still plants left (laughs) on the planet.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, okay. I love how you recall growing up in South Africa, foraging and your mom had some, um, some, some wisdom around that and mushrooms here and there. And then your housekeeper had some knowledge about native plants too. So tell me a little bit about how you got into foraging.
3: Um, you know, back in that day, foraging wasn't a word. It was a word you might find <laughs> in literature. Somebody would go foraging for the military or uh-huh. animals would forage. In in those days, and I think in many cultures, um, what we now call foraging was just going out seasonally and picking whatever was in season, like mushrooms in autumn or watercress in the middle of summer. It was just one of those little seasonal perks where you don't go to the shop, you go and pick something that's wild and fresh and free. So something kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the part of foraging that appeals the most to people. It's unexpected, it's, it's available in a really small particular window of time, and it's free. And it's something, it sounds
2: like it wasn't unusual, like when you were growing up.
3: Not particularly unusual. I mean, it wasn't something we were doing every day, but absolutely Mm -hmm. every season had the plant associated with it. And because my mother was a really good gardener, I've always thought of plants and food and foraging kind of in the same breath. They're all so related.
2: That's really cool. Um, So you now live in Brooklyn, and uh, you mentioned that you got into the local, I guess, plants or terroir you're going on a, a walk with Wild man Steve Brill?
3: I think a lot of people have, <laughs> have got into it through through Steve Brill, who is a, a renowned character. Mm-hmm. Um, he and his pith helmet um, you <laughs> often see him leading walks in the city parks. I'd been very interested in American plants for a while because I was working as a garden designer. And I had become acquainted with indigenous foods like service berries, these delicious berries that are ripe every June in -hmm. New York City and all over the country. But it was on a walk with him that I started to pay attention to weeds. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really thinking weeds, edible plants, but really they're they're often just another vegetable Mm -hmm. with a really bad rap. Right. With an illegitimate sort of uh, reputation. Exactly. Yeah. And and since our language is evolved with people, it's also evolved with plants. And we're we're reconsidering edible weeds. Mm-hmm. So plants that are sort of previously known as trash plants are part of my focus. I th- I think it's fantastic to eat pigweed, pokeweed. Mm-hmm. Um, plants they don't always
2: have the most beautiful names, though. Exactly,
3: <laughs> they have horrible names yeah. and, and mugwort. And mugwort. <laughs> although mugwort's kind of cool because yeah. it goes in a mug, beer mug. So mugwort is traditionally oh. used to make beer in Europe, and it's an essential ingredient in vermouth in Europe. You can't mm-hmm. call it vermouth mm-hmm. unless it has Artemisia vulgaris in it. I mean, even vulgaris is not kind of a nice species name. <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> 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 yeah,
3: that's a tough one. It really just means very common, but yeah, yeah. some something that's vulgar is everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. Oh,
2: that's so funny. We should rebrand. Um, yeah, and um, I too have um, enjoyed uh, wildland Sea Brill's walks and got into foraging a little bit there, but um, it always seems so, um, uh, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to access it sometimes. I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around actually doing this um, outside the occasional dilly-dally. So um, I'm, I'm curious what you would say to, to folks who are just like, really? I don't know
3: well on on the one hand, they have a really good point, especially if you're foraging in a mm-hmm. city. There are some really filthy places in mm-hmm. in any city, in any urban park, so there's there's the just ick factor on the other hand if if you're someone like me, you can't help seeing plants and identifying them with without even realizing you're doing it. So I see plants everywhere, and I know what most of them are. And it's really, really hard to walk past something that's Mm. completely delicious and just standing there and just ignore it. So I I tend to pounce if it's growing in a clean area. And Mm -hmm. even in a city like New York, there are big green spaces where you could walk for an hour and not see another human being, which still surprises me. Yeah. So you just need to be a bit discerning.
2: And I like how you mentioned if you're already a gardener too, you can sometimes identify weeds, quote-unquote
3: weeds, that are growing just in your own backyard. Exactly. A lot of the things, you know, like last night we had um, a weed called quick weed Mm -hmm. in our dinner. It was was just quickly sautéed and delicious. And this is like a scourge for most farmers and Mm -hmm. gardeners. And what I think is really appealing about this weed, which is a legitimate vegetable in Colombia, for instance, where it's called huascas, it's an essential ingredient there in a stew called ajiaco why are we just spraying Roundup on it? Because we don't know. So <laughs> that's very appealing to me. And I'm hoping increasingly that it's appealing to farmers. Uh-huh.
2: They have all these edible yeah. weeds
3: on their land, which they're either spraying into submission or, or that are choking their regular crops. Right. So hopefully with Forage Harvest Feast, some of these recipes are going to be an incentive for farmers and gardeners to go, oh, hang on, there's potential in this right. weed. It's it's delicious, and I can maybe sell it.
2: Absolutely, and let's make the task of weeding harvesting exactly. at the same time. Yeah. I mean, who, who doesn't love that idea? Um, I, I love that you mentioned that, um, you know, here you can find uniquely American flavors in the forage edibles. What are some of those flavors
3: that, that, um, that you feel are so, you know, just American? They are so exciting, and it's funny for a South African to be talking about American flavors, but perhaps it takes an outside point of view sometimes Mm -hmm. to recognize what's growing under our noses. Um, North America, the United States, still lacks regional cuisines. This is beginning to change, especially, I think, in the last maybe five years. We have indigenous plants growing, especially in the northeast, but across the country, which are as regional and as unique as thyme is for instance to the mediterranean we've forgotten that thyme comes from the mediterranean it's just a culinary herb but in the northeast and mm. across the country we have bayberry mm. we have spicebush um there are so many indigenous flavors like sweet fern that that have a unique flavor profile and that i think should be informing in an emerging an emerging collection of regional cuisines. Mm-hmm. There's
2: like so many different plants I've never heard of here, but some are are very common sound. I mean, there's garlic mustard. It's a more kind of spicy mustard.
3: Yeah, garlic wow. mustard is a horrible weed. It's it's like a complete botanical thug and it tastes, I think, like mustard, garlic, just like its name, and, and probably more like broccoli rabe for people mm-hmm. who like a slightly bitter flavor. It's amazing. Very good in springtime.
2: Yeah, um, so you, I like that, okay, I want to talk more about this um, vinegars and the elderberry vinegar that you have and the sumac sugar and stuff, but um, for one second, um, let's go to vermouth, because you write that that's a wonderful way of exploring, um, you know, translating a certain place to the palate. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Why is that so special for vermouth?
3: Vermouth is fun. It, mm-hmm. it contains lots, really as many as you like, lots of botanicals. And the way you make vermouth, if you're making it at home, um, I infuse lots of different herbs and sometimes flowers and fruit in high proof alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, vodka is a good one if you find a li- relatively okay. neutral vodka. Got it. Once they're all infused and they infuse for different periods of time, you start blending them. And that's the sort of art form and depends on your palate. Right. With a good white wine, so you're basically fortifying the white wine with an array of seasonal botanicals, and this is incredibly exciting. So fun. Yeah, I mean, you can do it in early spring, late spring, midsummer, late fall. You have a vermouth from a place because you're picking all those botanicals in a very particular place, and from a very particular place in time, which I think is just incredibly ev- evocative. And then you drink it, which is always fun. That is so cool. This
2: is like a cocktail mixologist dream come true. It sounds like absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Um, does anyone ever call you a modern witch? By the way? <laughs> not yet, thank
3: you. <laughs> I'm
2: just like looking at so many of these like crafty ideas that you came up with. I do have red hair, and
3: I used to have a black cat, so. <laughs>
2: I just uh, I just popped it into my head there. Um, uh, not that that's I don't mean that in a bad way, hopefully. No, I'll take it as <laughs> okay, a compliment.
3: <laughs> don't mess with me. All right. Okay. Yikes.
2: Um, so you write I can I read a little bit from oh, your introduction cuz I think this is like really beautifully sums up, you know, some of what you're doing here. Um, you write most of us are used to eating passively. We eat what is put before us neatly labeled and easily recognizable. We are not sure how it got there, how many people handled it, or what was required to grow it, but there it is. Foraging requires an interaction with and an awareness of our surroundings uh, and our food in a way that mere consumption does not. You have agency.
3: I love that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It's very yeah, inspiring. it's it's foraging can lead you down quite a lot of philosophical side roads mm-hmm. because it really makes you question food. What mm-hmm. is food? You have to identify it. You have to figure out if it's poisonous,
2: yeah. um,
3: and then how to prepare it to make it delicious. Right. And, and then you realize that
2: vermouth is just whatever people wanted to you know whichever herbs you wanted to infuse. It's not just this one standard green bottle.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, recently, a lot of new vermouths have been emerging and people are beginning to appreciate that on a a, a consumer scale. Mm -hmm. But what I'm still missing in some vermouths is a feeling of the indigenous of... This is an American selection of Ah. plants because they're really worthwhile in terms of spice, flavor, herbal quality, Hmm. and then throw in some invasive weeds just to kind of make it fun on that that spectrum.
2: Yeah. Well, um, maybe that's an untapped idea there. Hopefully people are listening. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude right now and be right back chatting more about some of your recipes. It's true. Done better But I won't be believed to really take the blame.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious Stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Circhois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese. With lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
2: Now I- and we're back chatting more with Marie Villon. No. Even better. I did it. Feillun.
3: Fuillon. Oh, you make it sound so French. It's very elegant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I know. I don't know Afrikaans,
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. Who does? Okay.
3: All right. Marie Villyon.
2: <laughs> um, whose new book is called Forage Harvest Feast, out just uh, just now from Chelsea Green. So I love this book. It is so informative. And I love that you brought me some gifts. So tell me a little bit more about this beautiful canary yellow sort of uh, elderflower vinegar in this bottle.
3: Elderflowers, yeah, they're they're so versatile and so floral. And they're one of the plants that everybody recognizes elderberries, yeah. Exactly. So they're like a gateway plant to Mm -hmm. foraging. So they're ready in like late May. And most people make an elderflower syrup or cordial. Mm-hmm. I do that um, by fermenting the okay. flowers. So after a few days, they're super fizzy and effervescent.
2: Mm-hmm. You can make an elderflower ice cream or soda Absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. So, right. so
3: that, that cordial can be used mm. in all sorts of ways. I cook with it as well. goes Great. really well with uh, sea bass. Oh. But if you leave it for a few more weeks, once mm-hmm. it's strained and you're lucky, you you get genuine... Vinegar. Um, wow. I don't use vinegar mothers. They tend to form spontaneously. Oh, wow. Um, which is fantastic. So Are I have kidding? this total wow. weird collection of vinegars at home with all the different <laughs> kinds. Of, my, my husband's really scared of them. Oh. <laughs> but um, but yeah, elder, he's eating them every day. He, he doesn't is, know it. Sometimes I don't tell him. <laughs> Um, so yeah the vinegar to me is very versatile. Mm-hmm. I like I like tart flavors yeah. more than sweet actually. So so much more useful in a kitchen. So I I'll do anything with vinegar. Um of salad course you can dressing. salad dressing of course then cocktails mocktails shrub and elderflower absolutely shrub. and then great for braising. Braising in vinegar especially a really aromatic one is delicious. Braise some duck legs in elderflower vinegar. Yum yum yum. Oh my goodness
2: that yeah. sounds
3: wonderful. Cut that fat too. Exactly. All right. So this is uh, Aronia syrup? That's Aronia syrup. So Aronia, if you Google Aronia, you'll get a lot of um, hits on the internet about supplements. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very popular as a supplement. If it works or not as a supplement, couldn't tell you. I'm a bit of a skeptic. Mm
1: -hmm. But
3: this is ripe sort of August on through November. I usually pick them when when there's been a little cold snap and the, the fruit gets... A little sweeter because it's quite tannic, quite tart, but very complex once you start fermenting or turning it into a syrup. Cool. And these look like blackberries or
2: something? They look a little
3: bit like blueberries, Mm -hmm. but they don't taste as friendly as a blueberry. It's really once you start cooking with it or exposing it to heat uh, or good bacteria that something really magical happens. And that's one of the things I like foraging too. You preserve things. So you have once you've done it for a year or two, an, an entire pantry of mm. ingredients to draw from. I love it. For, you know, an indefinite amount of time. beautiful,
2: and this syrup looks like a like a cherry juice or maybe a red wine. It's beautiful.
3: Yeah, that one I think I fermented, mm. so again, it got pretty fizzy for a while. Mm-hmm. And once it, once it wasn't active anymore, I bottled it, and, and there it is. I mix it into cocktails, drinks, add a dash to Prosecco... Can't wait Duck to try breasts, and, pork. Yeah, mm. a little
2: bit of color too. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of um, foraged foods that mo- many people might recognize um, are actually one in particular I wanted to bring up is ramps. Um, these are spring onions that are wild, and uh, we now see them at a lot of the farmers' markets in the spring. But you didn't want to include a whole section on them in your book. Why is it that?
3: was yeah. It was actually a hard decision to include ramps because mm-hmm. ramps are now well known as a mm. wild and very appealing food. They taste like garlic. They taste like spring onions. Um, they're very versatile. The problem with ramps is everyone does recognize them now. Uh, mm. Chefs have cre- created a big demand. Food writers like me have created a big demand, and ramps are an indigenous onion. Mm -hmm. They grow very, very slowly. So if you denude an entire ramp patch, that's pretty much it for the Uh ramp patch. And some commercial foragers, to fulfill a demand that now includes big stores like Whole Foods or even your local grocery sometimes, will just clean out indiscriminately. Uh And there's an art to collecting ramps. And when you collect them properly, there are some problems. One of the problems is you have to collect them slowly So if you're adding time to your forage as a commercial forager, you're also adding money.
0: Mm. So
3: forage more slowly. Pick the fat ramp from a clump. Better yet, just pick the leaves. Increasingly, especially on social media, I'm seeing people become aware of the fact that it's actually better just to collect the leaves, Mm. to leave the bulbs under the ground Mm -hmm. to allow them to keep reproducing. I mean, I can go on at length about ramps, but... Mm. If you're shopping for ramps in the springtime, and you'll see them in April or May, uh, you need to look for a few things. If you see very skinny ramps that are very, very thin and have their roots still attached, it's probably a good sign that a ramp patch has been yeah. cleaned off. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah. You need fat ramps, fat ones, uh, which means they're the biggest in a clump of ramps. Each, each ramp patch grows in little clumps. Um, Ideally, you're looking for ramps without roots. So it's quite hard for a forager to do, to dig them up and leave the root in the ground. It means you're cutting every single yeah. ramp. That's a shame. Even it's better, just a bunch of leaves. The right. leaves are packed with flavor. I'd almost say they're more flavorful, more flavorful than the bulbs.
2: Right. And there's so many other kinds of wild alliums with similar flavor profiles. We just talked about the garlic, um, you know, what is it called? Mustard greens. And then there's all sorts of wild garlics and onions.
3: Yeah. Field, field garlic is, uh-huh. is a good wild, weedy garlic. And it's prolific. It's all over the place. It's smaller than ramps, but it's very powerfully flavored. Mm. Um, it's very invasive. So picking as much field garlic as you like, this is totally fine. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, I'm seeing field garlic now at farmer's markets. Lonnie's Farm, uh, based in New Jersey, sell it every single year. So Mm. I I, I crack up when I see a $5 (laughs) bunch of field garlic. But I'm like, this is fantastic, because maybe we can slowly wean people off roads. Right,
2: right. But then what about the danger of decimating a different type of plant? Do you worry that in popularizing or writing about it? Because you, you mentioned that, you know, food writers like us, we unwittingly sign the death certificate for the ramps. Yeah, it's um, fascinating. In a lot of places.
3: Yes, I have, I have concerns about, say, common milkweed. Mm -hmm. So again, milkweed means it's viewed as a weed. Uh, Common milkweed is becoming popular in monarch butterfly circles because increasingly people are aware that monarch butterflies lay their eggs on common milkweed and Mm -hmm. their larvae, which are the caterpillars, feed on the leaves. Mm -hmm. So milkweed is important because monarch butterflies are under threat and need more milkweed. Along comes the forager, like me, and decides that milkweed shoots and buds and flowers are delicious because they really, really are. This is like a Native American vegetable that we've all forgotten about. Mm -hmm. So I feel conflicted when I post a picture of, say, milkweed flower cordial on Instagram, or the other night we had fried milkweed pods with uh, a whole bunch of shrimp. Absolutely delicious. But if people don't realize how common milkweed fits into the bigger ecological picture Mm -hmm. Um, you have a situation where you have a walk-in fridge in a restaurant with a whole bunch of milkweed just lying there, it's been picked at the wrong time of the year, it's wilting, they don't know how to prepare it, Mm -hmm. but that patch has been cleaned out, this happened to a friend of mine, I won't mention the restaurant or who (laughs) the friend was but (laughs) she, she was just appalled to see all this milkweed lying there with no real idea on the chef's part of how to use it he just saw that it was a good thing to eat, said to, his, said to his forager, go get it. Forager got it. Forager didn't understand when to pick it. Oh. So mm-hmm. some botanical background mm-hmm. and context is right. always important, especially when you're talking about an indigenous plant.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I grow mm-hmm. milkweed in my Brooklyn garden. I'm lucky to have a backyard, but it grows fantastically. And increasingly, I'm talking to farmers who are very curious about bringing it to market. They Mm -hmm. get rid of it on their farms. Um, They don't like their cows to graze it, so it's a pest. They get rid of it by spraying it, instead of doing that.
2: And yet, some other plants, it's like the more you pick them, the more you help sort of spread them around, right? Is that In some cases,
3: yeah. yeah. In some cases, you could spread them around by spreading seed, exactly. Okay yeah
2: it's in it's an interesting and I love how this book has like you know things to look out for They have complete profiles of each of these plants but also you know how to pick them properly because it's not always the case that you can decimate a whole batch of them like like with um, uh, ramps um, so so many wonderful sounding recipes here there's lamb's quarter nudie, tons of recipes with common dandelion which is just Everywhere, and um, it's so much fun to play around with. What would you say is a good recipe for like the real true beginner? To I don't know, what what would you recommend?
3: Oh, it depends on the season. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, name a okay, month. right now. So right now, elderberries. Um, okay. We, we had the elderflowers in May, and now elderberries are ripening, and they're also super recognizable to most people. Mm-hmm. If you pick a an elderberry off the bush, it tastes very. Blah, bland, boring, but the minute you expose it to heat, something miraculous happens. So, what I would do for a super simple recipe is you combine elderberries with a little bit of sugar, a little bit of water, cook them for half an hour, strain, and you have the most incredibly rich syrup, which is also very good for you. It's proven to be antiviral. So, I always have some syrup on hand in winter in case I get sick. and it's a fantastic ingredient. I use it in all kinds of things. Wow. And where can we find an elderberry
2: bush usually?
3: Elderberry, in, you know, foraging is opportunistic. And a lot of mm-hmm. people always say to me, well, where do I find this? Where do I find that? And the answer is keep your eyes open. Mm-hmm. It really teaches you to observe and to spot plants. Mm-hmm. Once you see an elderberry bush, you're going to see them everywhere. <laughs> so they're all over the city. They're all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um there are not a whole lot of plants I can think of that you could confuse with elderberry at this time of year um and again it's a very well-known European forage for instance Mm -hmm. so there's plenty of pictures of it out there um perfect keep your eyes open yeah I
2: can't wait um and now that I have this elderberry vinegar I'm gonna definitely try some more uses for it soon. yeah I hope you have fun Thank you so much. Um, so this book is really, really an amazing resource. It has tons of recipes and information about all these plants, not weeds, but plants. Um, culinary ingredients, that is. So I hope everyone gets their hands on it soon, but that's about all the time we have for today, Marie. Thank
3: Thanks for you. having me.
2: Yeah, thank it's you so much fun. for joining. <laughs> and um, keep keep watching her um, six, six, 66 square feet at Instagram Um, There's a blog. You sometimes do foraging walks, so look out for those coming up on your calendar. Thank you, Cassie. Thanks, everyone. And, uh, yeah, have a great week at Heritage Radio Network. See you next week.
3: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.